0: So what, uh, what is this place anyway? Is it some type of fancy DMV? Are you kidding? It's the Hall of Justice. Seth Everett is the best there is at what he does, bub. And what he does is the Hall of Justice
1: podcast. Go, no, go, no, go no with a smile. Welcome to another edition of the Hall of Justice. So glad you can join us and so glad you're going to hear this one. Jordan B. Gorfankel, normally known as Gorf, was the managing editor of the Batman franchise for DC Comics, producing more than 2,000 stories in multiple mediums. His creations include the Batman No Man's Land storyline, classic, Birds of Prey, which turns into a TV show, a feature film, and his stories were focused on Gotham, And The Dark Knight Rises. The way I met Gorf was so interesting. You may not know this, but I also do a podcast called Being Jewish with a friend of mine who's a rabbi. We talk about anti-Semitism. And Gorf is going to be doing a couple of appearances at the synagogue where the rabbi works. And they said to me, would you like to talk to Gorf on the Jewish anti-Semitism podcast? When I realized exactly who it was... It was a no-brainer. He had to come on the Hall of Justice. And not only that, it's going to be the first of many appearances because there's so much stuff I want to talk to him about. We couldn't even fit it all into one episode. Gorf is the creator, writer, producer of the Amazon number one bestseller Passover Haggadah graphic novel. He's also a musician and has a rich library of original content in print, animation, TV, film, digital You name it. And you can find him on all forms of social media. He's become a TikTok star at Jewish Cartoon. But before we get to Gorf and have so much fun with him, we have sad news in the Batman family. If you've ever listened to this podcast, one of the inspirations is Batman the Animated Series. Arlene Sorkin, the original voice and the inspiration behind the DC Comics character Harley Quinn, passed away this week at the age of 67. She was dealing with multiple sclerosis. The story is now legendary. Paul Dini, who's one of the architects behind Batman the Animated Series, was inspired by seeing his friend Arlene Sorkin on the show Days of Our Lives and duet, playing a snappy, wisecracking, bubbly blonde. When he came up with the character, it wasn't even named Harley Quinn. It was Henchwench and... She said, sure, I'd love to do it. It was her first ever voiceover, and she has done a tremendous job. The DC villain has emerged, went into the comics world, and there have been multiple incarnations. Tara Strong has played her. Margot Robbie played her in live action. Kelly Cuoco is playing her right now in the Harley Quinn cartoon on Max. And it's all from Arlene Sorkin. So for this podcast, a moment, let's hear the legendary Arlene Sorkin as Harley Quinn in Batman the Animated Series.
0: Harley Quinn, pleased to meet ya. You can't deny there's an element of glamour to these super criminals. You're a certified not so wanted in 12 states and hopelessly in love with a psychopathic clown. At what point did my life go looney tunes? <coughs> knock, knock, pudding. You know, for what it's worth, I actually enjoyed some of our romps. But there comes a time when a gal wants more.
2: Nice guys like you shouldn't have bad days.
1: Thank you, Arlene. I'm so sorry I never got to have you on the podcast. But your long career, including the work before Harley Quinn, should be remembered and honored. Rest in peace, Miss Sorkin. Goref... It's weird starting a podcast on, on a sad note, but let, let, let's let do it. I mean, for someone who's synonymous, and we said this in the open, synonymous with Batman, especially at a time when Batman the Animated Series was also on. Uh, Arlene Sorkin, I know she's had this, uh, this elaborate career and she's been in soap operas and television shows and movies and things. She's the original Harley Quinn. And to incorporate Harley Quinn into the comics and then to become a feature film star. And she has her own animated series and all these different things. This character is white hot and Arlene Sorkin's performance was really what it was about. Hey, Mr. J. Loved it. What was your reaction when you were working on Batman to the animated series? This is so not where I thought we were going to start this conversation.
2: Well, that's a great place to start because if you're going to point to a seminal production during my tenure, which was basically the 1990s, right. I would say that the Batman, the animated series, and all of its offshoots and different permutations is the distillation of everything that the Dennyverse, I don't know if anybody's ever coined it as that before, but that's yeah, really Den- what it Den- was. Denny
1: O'Neill, the great Denny
2: O'Neill. Right, that the Dennyverse represented. And... I think the first thing was that literally and metaphorically, it was bringing light out of darkness because the way that the animated series was created was on black paper, essentially. Sure. And they would, they would
1: get the shadows.
2: They would carve the positive out of the negative. And if that isn't a metaphor for what Batman is, I don't know. I can't think (laughs) of something else.
1: Uh, Tell us this is an old reference, but the Reader's Digest version of uh, how you got involved with DC Comics, and then ultimately to the editor, because so much of this episode is going to be about the massive uh, comic books that you worked on. But uh, I think people would love to know, how does someone get that job? (laughs) How did you get involved in that? And how did you ascend to essentially the top of your profession?
2: I'm going to give you the I was going to say Cliff Notes version, Spark Notes Cliff version. Cliff Reader's Wikipedia. Digest,
1: Cliff Notes, both things that right. are lost to half the audience.
2: The Dark Knightopedia version, because and in, in your show notes, I can give a link to a recording I did at some Comic-Con or other years ago where I told the story at great length. And okay. it's far more entertaining to listen to when you have an audience responding to it. Yeah, I bet. But the, the short answer is that I was an introverted, overweight child who read a lot of comic books, moved around quite a bit, lived in 11 cities before the age of 21. And the in my life, consistency in my life was the comic books and superheroes, because wherever I went, the DC characters, and those are the ones that I was attracted to, they, they were always on the side of right. They were always my big brothers and big sisters, for that matter. And I could depend on them to be my moral compass when everything around me, the ground around me was always shifting. And that was a great comfort. Later on, when I was at, I studied at Boston University, I studied communications, which I likened to being a little bit of everything and a whole lot of nothing, because you come out of it with a real review of all of the aspects of mass communications, but it's not specifically a trade school. So you're not coming out of it saying, okay, I'm going to go into uh, marketing, advertising, what have you You can go into any of those things. It's kind of like the closest thing to, to working in uh, preparing for a it's the closest thing to preparing for a career in entertainment without majoring in history, psychology, or English. Let's put it that <laughs>
0: way.
2: Uh, so I will tell, I'll give a bit of advice to un, unbidden advice to those uh, younger people who are listening right now and thinking, I want to do what he does. How do I do what he does? Which is Why essentially is this big a question.
1: podcast. Talk about this Reader's Digest. What is this Reader's Digest?
2: Yes. What is this Reader's Digest? What is this TV guide? What, what is this corded phone of which you speak? The advice that I would give is that you should think of university as an experience to broaden your mind. Learn about the world, learn about great literature and great liberal arts. Don't think of it as a trade school. When you get out of school, you'll get a job, you'll learn what to do. Or you'll start a business during school and you'll learn from practical experience or your extracurriculars what to do. It's so important, especially if you're going to be in a creative field like comic books and graphic novels, movies, TV, film, mass media, to understand the world and be able to draw upon, no pun intended, and there are gonna be a lot of bad puns like that, dad joke, to draw upon the world at large in order to feed your creative output. And the zeitgeist, meaning whatever is going on around you right now, is not going to be good enough, because if you're thinking of it right now, so are 50 other people and you're too late. You need to be two or three years ahead. And I would say that, um, uh, thank God, I was able to always project ahead in my career at DC Comics of what where I thought things should be going and be ahead of the curve. So that's my unbidden advice. So so to answer your question, Boston University, I moved to New York City afterwards. I did a year of School of Visual Arts because I had also done an arts program while I was at Boston University. I got special dispensation to take 30 hours of class a week. Oy and. I realized in New York that I am an objective oriented person and I need a goal to reach. I can't just learn things for the sake of learning things. I I need a practice. I need practical experience. So I left school. I started temping. Temping is something that I think is along the lines of the aforementioned corded phone and uh, all those other outdated notions. And temping is You call up uh, a firm in the morning and you say, what do you got for me? And they say, well, we've got a magazine company that needs somebody to frame and hang pictures for two days. Okay. I'll take that job. And you earn enough money to, be able to buy yourself a cup of rice for dinner, and then you go on the next day. And the reason I did that was in my heart of hearts, I didn't want to get trapped. I didn't want to get stuck in a job where I would say, okay, you know what, I'm comfortable and I'm a little scared to go on to what I really want to do. What I really wanted to do was be creative. And uh, you'll have to listen to the link that we'll provide to get all the details. But I was uh, learning uh, under the uh, auspices of the aforementioned Daniel may rest in peace in a class in School of Visual Arts called Writing for the Comics. And he was the teacher. Danny O'Neill was the teacher? He was the teacher. He taught. Holy moly. Yeah, he taught uh, writing for the comics at the School of Visual Arts. And then he went on to, uh, I think, NYU and, and a bunch of other schools and universities. And in fact, I may be one of the only people who still has his entire syllabus. Um, I'd pull it down for you, but this is an audio medium, not a visual medium. So it's right, not going to so- be. Meet-
1: Nobody would see it. You know
2: what? It's an audio medium. Hey, take a look at this. And I don't actually yeah. have to hold up anything. Isn't that cool? Don't you hate hey, when people do that? <laughs> right. It's like in comedy records. My favorite thing about comedy records is when a comedian is building towards a punchline and he'll say, and, da, 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 and then he did this. And there's silence for two seconds while you know he's doing something on stage that you have no idea what he's doing. <laughs> audience, stop. it's my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> So Danny O'Neill taught a class and uh, I and Darren Vincenzo, a future Batman editor, uh, yep. one of the, my fellow Bat guys, uh, were taking the class. We used to ride the subway home together. I think he got off earlier because he was going to Queens and I was going to the Upper West Side of New York. And long story short, I learned about that there was an internship. And there's a funny story about that. I became an intern at DC Comics. And two months yep. later, I was offered one of two jobs. One of them was to be the assistant to Danny O'Neill because Scott Peterson, his former assistant, was getting advanced. So Scott, Darren, and I became the bat guys under, <clears throat> excuse me, under Dennis J. O'Neill. And the rest was history.
1: Give me a timeline for this. So you're now interning at DC Comics. What year is that? That is nineteen ninety-one,
2: okay. I think. That it would have been um so this is
1: pre death of Superman, and
2: nightfall is is just gonna begin,
0: okay.
2: it was probably being prepped at that time, although I wasn't aware of it because I wasn't part of the bad guys yet right um I, I think it was it, did I start ninety one or ninety two my very first issue was Robin three, meaning the miniseries Robin three issue number six. and I don't remember if that was ninety one or ninety two but okay back that up four or five months. And it was a good thing that they offered me the job because by that point I had stopped temping. And uh, as you can tell from before, I wasn't exactly raking it in by temping. So I was out of money. <laughs> I was gonna, I was on the verge of starvation as it was. I was probably bringing bread and jam for lunch every day because that was about all I could afford. You know, you're
1: talking about uh, Denny O'Neill, but DC at this time, You know, Neil Adams was still working there. Correct. Uh, I mean, there's 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 a legacy of the comic book. And, you know, in the 1990s, comic books are about to take another stratosphere. Um, You know, this is on the heels of Frank Miller and and year one and things like that. And the whole landscape was changing. And you were a witness to all of that.
2: Yeah, when you're doing it, though, you don't think of yourself as a witness. You think of yourself as the gatekeeper. We felt a keen responsibility to Denny, whom we revered, and Batman, uh, a character and a valuable IP, certainly, but a character that we loved. I don't know how else to say it, to... Uh, Well, to say to not screw it up is understating it because we wanted to also grow it. We were young enough to have the energy, passion, and I think requisite foolishness. You have to have a little bit of gumption in order to be able to say, we're going to take on this character and we are going to maintain what's great about it and evolve it at the same time.
0: People often
1: ask me how do I keep motivated and uh, how do I keep my spirits up. Well, things are are moving forward instead of backwards. I think every neuroscientist in the world, if you lined them all up and asked them the same question, can this spinal cord be repaired? They'd say yes. That is the voice of Christopher Reeve. Whether this is your first time ever hearing the Hall of Justice or you've listened to over 300 of the episodes that we've put together since this podcast was created in 2015, the superhero genre owes a great deal to the role Christopher Reed played as Superman. Partnering with the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation is an honor for the Hall of Justice podcast. In 1995... The accomplished actor was paralyzed after being thrown from a horse during an equestrian competition. After his accident, he lobbied for spinal injury research, and that led the man who once played Superman to the foundation that bears his name. Here's the origin story from the foundation's CEO, Maggie Goldberg.
0: So when Christopher Reeve was injured in 1995, he was looking at all of the other organizations in the country and really around the world. Um, and there weren't that many that were searching for cures and treatments for spinal cord injury. And what he loved about our organization at the time, which was the American Paralysis Association, is that we were funding research. Our mission and sort of theme was considered a laboratory without walls. We wanted to fund the best research no matter where it was in the world. And one of the other parts of the mission was bringing researchers together and to share information, which wasn't really something that was done at the time. Researchers can be very competitive. They hold their information close to the best. So I think that's what really drew him um, most to this organization.
1: The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation is dedicated to curing spinal cord injury by advancing innovative research and improving the quality of life for individuals and families impacted by paralysis. We are on the cusp of a new era in spinal cord injury where real cures are within reach. The Reeve Foundation serves as a catalyst at this critical moment uniting academics, scientists, and industry in a new model of collaboration.
0: The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation is really the only national paralysis foundation focused on a dual mission, today's care, tomorrow's cure. We are searching for cures and treatments for spinal cord injury paralysis caused by spinal cord injury but we also provide services and programs for people impacted by all types of mobility impairments. So when you think about paralysis, it's not just spinal cord injury, it's stroke, ALS, MS, um, in addition to spinal cord injury. And we're here to really help people navigate their journey through paralysis, whether or not they were diagnosed or impacted from yesterday, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago.
1: This partnership is not the only tie Christopher Reeve has had with this podcast even though it was created 11 years after his passing in 2004. In the 1970s at Juilliard, Christopher Reeve was good friends with Kevin Conroy. Little did they know then that while Christopher Reeve would be the embodiment of Superman, Kevin Conroy would be known as the voice of Batman. And Kevin was kind enough to come on this podcast during his illustrious career five times. Tragically, Dana Reeve passed away in 2006, and the foundation was renamed the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. I asked CEO Maggie Goldberg how listeners of the Hall of Justice podcast can participate and help the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation.
0: There are many ways to get involved. The easiest is to go to our website at ChristopherReeve.org. You can also follow us on social media. Our handle is at Reeve Foundation. Um, You could become an advocate. You can run a marathon and join Team Reeve. You can become a fundraiser. You can help us spread the word. You can become a volunteer. All of that is outlined at ChristopherReeve.org, and we invite you to become part of our family.
1: In the weeks and months to come, we are going to organize some walks and some activities that can raise money for the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. But for now... If you are hearing this for the first time, the fifth time, or the tenth time, go to ChristopherReeve.org. Get the newsletter and find resources in your area. I'd like to think that if we had this podcast in the time that Christopher Reeve was alive, he'd want to be a part of it. He'd want to be a part of the show, and he'd want us to spread the word about this foundation. Thanks to you, the listeners, we are going to do that. I think in order to accomplish something somebody has to go out there and put out a vision that makes it seem more
0: real, more tangible.
1: you mentioned nightfall and we talked about this as being a seminal moment of Batman. Um, Night, nightfall is going on at the time. I mean, this is going to sound crazy. Was, was his back already broken by the time you were named editor? <laughs> like, <laughs> it feels, feels uh, weird saying that. Um, I was, believe was, was John Paul Valley uh, uh, wearing the cape and cowl at that point? Like, Give me some context of your role and this iconic storyline.
2: I began, if, I'm, my, if my memory serves, I probably should have looked this up before we began talking. If my memory serves, and if my kids know, never depend on my memory, so look it up. My very <laughs> first credit on an actual issue of Batman was Batman 491, which was the first issue of Nightfall. Or was it nightfall? Yeah, it was nightfall. It was nightfall. Ah, uh, so my tenure ran through nightfall, um, night quest, night's end, and then all the ones that followed afterwards, uh, prodigy, legacy, um ah, uh, what was the one with the uh, the disease that basically presaged ah uh, covid? I mean, we we did a lot of contagion contagion. thank you. yeah, we did a lot of future predicting uh, during our tenure. Uh, so, it, uh, unfortunately, I mean, because <laughs> I don't think we ever had, I, I put it this way, we always had some kind of terrible calamity that Batman had to fight against because drama is the grist for the dramatic mill. If we had only done things like, uh, uh, you know, the Messiah is coming, then perhaps by now we would have had the Messiah instead of Armageddon, <laughs> as we were so good at predicting the future. Well.
1: What I remember in, you know, we're talking about a time, 91, 92, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast a dozen, dozens of times. um, That's when I'm exposed to comic books. You know, my, my reader's digest story is um, I was working for the campus TV station and I got sent to cover the death of Superman. And I went to this comic book store. I couldn't believe how many people were there. And the next semester, so we're six months later, uh, I had a car and I drove my car. And the first thing I did on campus, once I was back on campus after a break, but I had a car, was I drove to the comic book store. And at this point in the timeline, Hal Jordan had gone bananas. Right. And I was just like, this is for me, like this... I'm the demographic for this. And I never thought that. I always thought comics were for kids. And I didn't know what I credit Nightfall for doing is. Nightfall felt like it was going on forever. And again, my timeline's all convoluted because I didn't see the beginning of it. So I don't know when exactly it started, but this idea of him being critically injured, and the Bat family taking on as it was going, it seemed like that was going to be the new normal. And I wouldn't have believed, because of my naivete at the time, that Bruce Wayne was ever going to be Batman again.
2: The whole idea behind these stories, if they're successful, is to engage the reader so deeply that they are passionate about it, that they care. And for us, there was a lot of evolution during the course of stories. And this happened not only in nightfall, but it happened all the way in no man's land as well, where once you're into it and you begin to feel what's going on around you, not so much what the response is, but almost what the vibe is mm. it's 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 um it's a feeling that is ephemeral, but if you can just capture it in the moment, then, you can respond to it in a way that is organic to the storytelling and not fan service, as we call it today. Mm -hmm. It's something that you, that it's, it's an emotional uh, response that's translated into craft that you kind of have to be deep into it to understand. It's a runner's high. It's like the, the equivalent of runner's high in the middle of a run. So we're both doing a marathon and we're sprinting. We're sprinting every day to make sure that the books are getting out. uh, The ships are running on time. That was our chief responsibility. But we're also doing a marathon because all of these books have to add up together into an engaging experience so that the fan cares. And that's what we tried to do. And obviously, anybody who does this job begins at a place where they say, if it'll please me, it'll probably please the readership. If I like it, I think other people will like it too, mainly because we're all drawn from the same cloth.
1: Well, and that's kind of the model in what at least from my standpoint, I evaluate today's projects. You know, when a show or a movie or anything comes out, you can tell when the creator loves the source material. You can tell it's an intangible. It's not a concrete thing. I can't point to one moment, but you can tell. And the quality of the work shows that there is that passion. You can see it. You know, the, the analogy that I, uh, I use, um, you can tell that the Russo brothers love Marvel. You can, you can feel it. They, they love those characters. You can tell that John Favreau loves star Wars you can tell that you guys loved Batman. You can feel it. If you read these books, they are intoxicating books. I said this in the beginning of the show. Um, they are. It's it not just Nightfall. This Batman run that you were a part of, you could just tell that there was so much attention to detail.
2: I, I was blown away. And the folks who worked on the Batman the Animated series were probably at the top of that pyramid they loved batman more than anybody and they so much right they were able to take all of the source material and blend it into something that was at the same time reverential and fresh Mm -hmm. and we had uh, some of our most joyous memories and again my memory is terrible but i do remember sitting at uh in chinese restaurants with crazy paper, white, basically white butcher block paper on the table and crayons. And that's why I loved going to this restaurant. And uh, we were all able to draw while we were eating or while we were waiting for our food. And we would sit there with artists and especially the creators of the Batman the Animated Series, and we would just draw on the table. And you might ask, okay, so did anybody save those tablecloths. And the answer is no, I don't think anybody did. We probably just gave it to the waiter as a thank you. But boy, that would be some amazing record of those times. But those people were very welcoming of our input and solicitous of our feedback. And most of all, Really interested in the stories that we had told and the stories we were telling, so that they could make the best ber- best version of Batman ever. And I think they did. And when I say Batman, I mean the Batman family at large, yeah,
1: yeah, well, let me see that and kind of raise you one one step. It seemed like what was happening in all the books, and you can tell me the backstory of whether or not this was intended. It just seemed like one iconic event after another. Um, the death of Superman. So, so you guys are working in the same office as, essentially as Mike Carlin and uh, the 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 Super Team. You know, you guys were the Bat Guys. They're the Super Team.
2: Yeah, we were next an neighbors, office wise.
1: Yeah, they were so. So, and they have their their famous uh, retreat that they went to some hotel and they they're planning the year. And what they what they did, you know, their plan was to have Lois and Clark get married. Right. And then Warner Brothers comes in and says, you can't do that because ABC has this new show, uh, Lois and Clark, and you can't marry them. And somebody I think it was Jerry Ordway, but th- there's this famous line. Dan Juergens was on this podcast. We did this story in depth, um, said, well, let's just kill him. And Mike Carlin said, well, how are you going to do that? And they map out what seemed like years worth of content in this one meeting. You guys are doing Nightfall at that time, but uh, you mentioned Contagion. There, there's, there's these cataclysmic events. And let's not talk about Green Lantern and what had happened with Parallax, with the whole idea of uh, in the reign of the Superman storyline, uh, Coast City is destroyed. And the impact on Hal Jordan, he goes effing bananas. Yeah,
2: and don't and forget was, Arrow, because we were overseeing Green Arrow at the time also. We were segueing into Connor Hawk.
1: Right, Connor Hawk. And don't forget, before you get there, they kill Barry Allen in The Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1986. And th- this is what my whole argument when I started this podcast was, Grant Gustin should have been Wally West. I, 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 I You had John Wesley shift. He could have been Barry Allen. You had Wally West. Grant Gustin could have been Wally West and the whole show because it was a whole generation of people, not just kids. It was adults that grew up. Wally West was their flash.
2: Yeah. Well, just I, I, like
1: just like Connor Hawk or or and, and I thought Connor Hawk was brilliant in the Arrow show. And I thought, you know, to that to that end, you know, I'm a huge Kyle Rayner fan. A massive Kyle Rayner fan. And I'm also I love Ron Mars, who's also been on this podcast.
2: Yeah, I always tell people who have their favorite eras and then the characters or the creators or both move on to something new and it may not be the direction that the fans enjoy or want. I always tell them, you always have what you liked and what you loved. That's never going away but we need as creative people to evolve. I had this, this is going to seem like a bit of a non sequitur, but it's actually very related. I had a bit of a give and take on Billy Joel's Instagram account. <laughs> and uh, I'm a huge Billy Joel fan. Okay. And, what's that? Okay. <laughs> okay. He's thinking. Um, so- no, it's just
1: that, that was the m- most random uh, reference I wasn't expecting. That's all.
2: And the uh, the discussion was, the pre and post basically nylon curtain eras because right. if you're a billy joel fan you have that incredible run that one two three punch from 78 to 1980 where he records the stranger 52nd street and um glass houses right and to have somebody write those three albums all in a row like that is unbelievable and it's some of the that my favorite music I'm not going to say the greatest music because that's subjective. I'm going to say it's my favorite. Your favorite era of
1: of your favorite right?
2: And then he does the Nylon Curtain in which he. uh, So, you know what? Let's put this in Batman terms now. So you have Nightfall, Night Quest and Night's End. Boom, boom, boom. That's your Billy Joel three album run right there then afterwards you have john paul valley who's taking over batman and it goes in all kinds of directions where fans may or may not have enjoyed where it was going and in billy joel, so many
1: people that didn't like him, but but were gripping they
2: they read every word like right. they were buying every comic book you didn't have to like john paul valley telling the same story so with billy joel I I bought the Nylon Curtain and it was such a departure because at the time I didn't realize that this music was actually live recordings of his previous recordings that never got any attention and were great music and favorites of his. But it was still different from what I was accustomed to, you know, and I bought it. And I learned to enjoy it, but it wasn't that immediate kind of gratification that I had had on the previous three albums. Then he goes on and he does An Innocent Man and Stormfront and uh, River of Dreams, and he just keeps evolving. So he goes all the way into uh, Night's End. And eventually he says, "Okay, I'm done. And in fact, the very last song that he has on his last album is This is the Last Word I Have to Say. Right. And that's it. And then he's done. And he never records again. I mean, there are a couple of exceptions here and there, but by and large, he's just going over his greatest hits over and over and over again. And in Batman, we had a choice to make, which was, do we do that? Do we say we've told the greatest story that of Batman that has ever been told and we're never going to have another word to say? No, we say. We have to evolve. We have to go on. We have to be creative in the same way that Billy Joel had to evolve and be creative in different musical ways post Nylon Curtain. So, too, we had to do that with Batman. Eventually, I would get to No Man's Land and say, you know what, now it's time for me to write that Billy Joel song and to say this is the last word I have to say. And it's time to let somebody else write a song now, write the music now, you know, write the hits. To to paraphrase uh, Barry Manilow, you know, uh, I, I to write the comic books that we all read.
1: Even though Barry Manilow did not write, I write the songs. That's true, but boy, did he sing them well.
2: <laughs> That's right, but he... I write the comic books that we all read. Oh,
1: can this be on your TikTok? Sure. If I send you this video, can this be on your TikTok?
2: Absolutely. Folks, Jordan,
1: by the way, Gorf is a fantastic TikToker. It's hysterical.
2: Thank you. I'm new to it. And credit to my assistant and daughter, Eliana Gorf, who is posting all those TikTok videos. You can find us at Jewish Cartoon. That's my brand now. At Jewish Cartoon. Instagram and TikTok.
1: Uh, let's let's jump to No Man's Land because this is the first of many appearances on the podcast. uh, Hopefully. And we can go into all the details, but I, I could do this whole episode and never get to No Man's Land. There's so much
2: material here. Right. And by the way, Seth, I want to interrupt you for a second and just make a very important point, which is it takes a village. You asked before, what was my involvement? My involvement was I was a shepherd, mostly. My job was to interface with all of the amazing creative people who, by and large, oh, were yes. per diem, artists and writers and creators. And uh, I was their Alfred. That was my job, to make them a better Batman creator. And uh, anything that I did was building on whatever faith they gave to me. Um, Or uh, I should say, whatever faith they had in me, which was really rather undeserved. I guess they all, everybody along my path saw a spark and said, this kid is worth investing in because there's something about him. He's going to do something. But in the meantime, my job wasn't to do something. My job was to help them. And that's what I did when I was on Batman.
1: Hmm. Um, You are credited with conceptualizing No Man's Land. Yeah. Obviously, you didn't write every book. You didn't draw every book. You were the editor, but you conceptualized. Now, did you think of the earthquake? Was that your deal also? (laughs) the much underpublicized earthquake that led to No Man's Land. Um, what was that What was that book called?
2: That was Cataclysm. Cataclysm, that's right. Yeah, that and, and I, Cataclysm. Word earlier, and that helped jog my memory. I <laughs> you
1: know, but the funny thing is, is I turned around because I have all these books in my book. Um, so you came up with the earthquake? See. <laughs> well, well, here's my question. Did you come up with the earthquake and have a simpler ending to it? And not No Man's Land? Or how did that work?
2: Everything is evolution. I, I can't really point to who came up with what. Again, okay. I have a memory. You'd have to talk with Scott Peterson or Darren Vincenzo or all three of us. Or tune in to our new Bat Guys Return podcast, which we're trying to launch. Yes. Uh, to- and uh, ask them or ask us collectively who did what. We don't even really care that much. We were a hive mind. And in fact, in the offices, it'd be also be interesting for you to talk to some of the people who were in the office at the time to find out what their response to us was, because they may have loved us, they may have hated us, and probably both at the same time, because we really closed ranks. We were a very tight ship, we ran a, a, a strong outfit, and uh, we were very specific about who the character of Batman was and how he should be used to keep him consistent and keep him... I don't want to say realistic, that's not the right word, but he sh- the character needs a verisimilitude because if you think about, I realize I'm going on a slight tangent here, but it's it's relevant. If you think about Batman as a character realistically, it's rather absurd. I mean, doesn't the Batmobile ever get stuck in traffic? It just, just doesn't work. <laughs> okay. So, So the idea here is you're really telling mythological stories, not realistic stories. And when Batman works at his best, uh, or the Batman family works at its best it's because we're telling stories that are um timeless and that of course is why batman's such a great character because batman is endlessly adaptable everybody as i said before you're always going to have your favorite batman well everybody can have their favorite batman and sometimes all those batmen coexist in in the OOs you had um the the most aggressive uh, dark knight from the Christopher Nolan trilogy uh, on one end of the spectrum and at the same time, you had Batman, the Brave and the Bold, where every episode, Batman is teaming up with another superhero in a golly gee oh, whiz. Sure. Hey, you no, know, let's, sure. let's solve a problem and learn a lesson, folks. Uh, and by the way, I, I do not do that great series service in describing it that way. It had a fantastic jazzy score and a great writing, great vocal performances. It's an underrated show that is worth checking out. Batman, Brave and the Bold. Anyway, so all those Batman can coexist. and uh, And likewise... We uh, needed to make sure that when Batman uh, was presented in DC Comics in a continuity, that the Batman was always the same Batman that you would recognize whether he was in Justice League or Batman or guest starring in Aquaman or what have you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we had out of continuity uh batman titles and properties and for those who don't know i assume everybody on this podcast knows but continuity simply means that you have a timeline that is consistent and for many right. many years in comic so book if
1: batman breaks his arm in batman comics he shows up in superman comics he's got a broken arm
2: right so if superman is dead and and everybody's wearing black armbands then in batman they're wearing the black armbands right.
1: too that's a better analogy this consistent. yours was real
2: Of course. And this consistency, uh, I think, was both a boon and a detriment because it was a boon because it created what we now know as a universe uh, that uh, had uh, tentacles that would just continue growing outward, to mix my metaphors. It was a detriment because it prevented us sometimes from telling the stories we wanted to tell because, oh, well, you know, we established in this issue that um, his blood is red, so he, his blood can't be green in this issue over here, right, and that right. was a frustration to some people, as I'm sure we were frustrated to some people that we wouldn't let them do to Batman what they wanted to do. But Batman doesn't work as a daylight character; he can't be running around in uh, um, in a in a bat wing uh, fighting General Zod in the middle of a field because uh, it just that that's not who the character is. Right. Anyway. And you understand the reference that I'm making. Sure. The, uh, uh, but the thing was, we knew, and you were talking about this before, and I wanted to get back to this. We knew that we as creators were telling stories that were interesting to our cohorts. And that meant that adults were reading these comics. But we need to bring kids into comics because the next generation has to be... Uh, has to be welcomed. Has to be uh, the 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 readership has to be constantly resuscitated that's not the right word you know what i'm trying to say it has to be it has to be a constant flow it has to be constantly building otherwise it collapses and then you have problems like we're having right now where the readership is aged up and comic book sales are very low and new uh, new readership is not being attracted is not coming in and that's because we're becoming like ChatGPT. we're just regurgitating uh the same uh creators and and uh and creations uh, to the point where nobody knew was coming in and interested. missing a whole bunch of metaphors. So one of the things that uh, Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo created was the Batman animated series of comics called the Batman Adventures. Yeah, and Dan Slott. At the right, and at the same time that you had the uh, the animated series going on, you had really uh, terrific original stories, groundbreaking stories, even in the comics. And Harley Quinn's very first appearance in uh comics was in the Batman adventures, number seven, eight, nine, somewhere around there. Right. Well, now worth a tremendous amount of money. Everybody go dig out your comics. Uh and there's a
1: there's a very good chance I have it somewhere.
2: I know where mine is because I actually went to find it. Um uh, I'm I'm actually bartering my massive comic book collection uh to my the colorist of my weekly cartoon. You can find that at Jewishcartoon.com and of course at Jewish Cartoon on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. So I'm bartering away my comic book collection to my colorist, who uh, I think will really love it and appreciate it. And at the same time, I get coloring on my uh, my weekly cartoon. Uh, anyway, so I, I had to dig out that comic book to find it because, uh, hey, you know, a thousand bucks, that pays for a lot of coloring. Yeah. <laughs> in any event, the very first appearance of Harley Quinn in continuity... Was it part of No Man's Land, and that was Batman Harley Quinn number one, and it was drawn by Yvel G- goucher and inked by Aaron Sode, and uh, written, of course, by Paul Dini, who co-created the character. And from there, the character was then launched into her own title, and and her costume was changed, and she was uh, like the. Uh, the the uh the character or the mythological character of the trickster that the joker is based on that she's based on she also proved herself to be an extremely adept and adaptable character that is what one of the top three if not top five DC comic characters in existence right nowadays,
1: now nowadays yeah. yeah it's it's crazy to see the way uh she I mean she was she was in a movie she was in a live action movie Margot Robbie played her yeah ah, it's crazy Harvey. Barbie, Barbie Qu- herself. No, Margot Robbie, a brilliant actress. The roles that she's played for Harley Quinn, not as great. And yeah. I and Mar- think Margot Robbie, after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, could literally, or I, Tanya, two of her fantastic roles, uh, should have been a little bit more discretionary. And Barbie shows what happens when she insists on some of the creative roles behind it, bringing in Greta Gerwig. And making Barbie what it has been, as opposed to birds of prey, <laughs> which
2: which wasn't look, they the the fact that they took swings at all, and you know when you're working on a film, you it, like when you're working on a comic book, you hope that it's going to work. And the fact that these companies from d c comics then to um uh who's who produced yeah but uh, then
1: then people were happy just to see anything on a screen whereas now i think we can be a little bit more selective in, in... The fun part that
2: uh the like, company we're not,
1: we're not thrilled that shazam 2 got made
2: i'm thrilled that shazam 2 got made just because whoever thought that shazam 1 would be as good as it was but for some and... reason this the script wasn't uh, developed as fully as it should have, and all of those winning performances in the movie were wasted. Well,
1: and uh, that's and that's the the overriding theme of this podcast, which is Ryan Reynolds was great as Green Lantern. It's not his fault he fought
2: a cloud. Right, right. And what what I'm going for here is it's very hard work to make this stuff, of and course. and I listen to a lot of podcasts and I enjoy a lot of uh, YouTubers. Um, and I I think that when they make constructive criticism mm-hmm. valuable and I enjoy it, when they cross the line and just start fetching and they start uh, berating the creators and the executives who are making these decisions, um, it gets to be a little bit too much for me. And the reason is because I know how the sausage is, is made. I know how hard this is. I know the bump you end up getting into just because you have to put blinders on in order to get the work done and 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 hit the deadlines and it's very 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 tough work and there's a lot at stake in comic books it's easy to take chances okay you know what uh, batman number 1050 is not great we'll get them in 51 or as we used to joke in comics we'll save it in coloring and <laughs> when it comes to movies. You're doing the same thing. you just have that many more people and that much more money and that many more uh, stakeholders stakes,
1: right. The, the stakes are higher. but right. but to your point,, um, I think that when you were editing Batman in the '90s, it was a very different time. Um, you know, for one example of, of the criticisms has been comparing everything that DC's putting out now what DC animation is putting out is still high quality work, but it's either targeted for an adult audience. And some of these animated films have been rated R or it's teen Titans go or DC superhero girls. And it's for the general, for, 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 for young little kids. Whereas Batman the Animated Series and Superman the Animated Series and the Justice League Series, you could be 7, 17, 27, 37, 47, 57 and love that crap. Right on. Because it's good.
2: Yeah, and um, that's what was great about Batman the Animated Series. And that was great. What was great about uh, Batman Adventures, that it worked like a great Bugs Bunny cartoon or great Simpsons cartoon on two levels. If you're a kid, then you get the surface meaning. If you're an adult, right the artistry, and the subtext. And in my career now, especially as I've segued into the Jewish cartoon brand, I continue to focus on that text and subtext. I always feel like the best stories, the ones that really hit the heart and become timeless, are those that you initially come to because you love the plot and the characters, but over time, they they stick to you because they're mythological. They have yeah, totally. much deeper underpinnings.
1: I mean, this this applies more to Marvel, to be perfectly honest. Well, it applies to DC too, but Marvel the the problems have been story development, and the stories have not been as developed. And if you listen to the podcast in the reviews, we point to specific moments: Black Panther two and uh, Doctor Strange, and 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 and, and Tom Holland's Spider Man character. Tom Holland's a brilliant actor a brilliant actor, and he looks like Peter Parker. (laughs) But he's the dumbest dude in the world, and every one of his adventures, it's all his fault, always. And, you know, that's where we're at this point where I don't think in the 90s people scrutinized social media didn't exist, the internet was in its infancy. I don't think people judged no man's land the way they're judging everything that comes out now. And I just wonder, you know, it's, it's part of what's happened to comic books. You know, if you watch uh, everything in the Arrowverse, you watch every Marvel movie and every Star Wars film, but you haven't picked up a comic book in six years, are you a comic book fan? And I wonder about that all the time because there are still comic books being made, but they don't seem to have the bite. Forget the impact because there's all kinds of mitigating factors on the impact, but they don't seem to have the bite that they did when you were there. When you, when you were there, it seemed like you couldn't wait for the next issue because you needed to know. And, you know, for, for adults who didn't go to comic book stores every week, you couldn't wait for the next trade paperback.
2: What you're talking about is a, a very large subject. And I'll just address, I think, one or two portions of it. One is yes, we were not under the microscope, in we were not responding to criticism in real time the way that many creators now feel that they have to in the Twitter verse or the X verse. It's strange to call Twitter X because for us, X would be the X Men, the X Men, yep, little confusing, and that gave us some freedom to make mistakes without. Feeling like our self esteem was going to take a beating at every turn. Mm -hmm. There's no question in my mind that that was a much healthier working environment than perhaps what we have now. On the other hand, now we have the ability for creators who never otherwise would have a platform to make themselves known. And we're finding amazing stories and amazing creators that then segue into professional careers through social media. So, everything always has its detriments and its detriments and its benefits. So sure. I would say that's part one and I completely blanked on the part two that I was going to talk about, but your your point in general about uh, scripts not being fully developed and so forth is just the problem that you have with uh, an expanded universe. And when I created No Man's Land, the idea that I had was this is going to be the spiritual end of this 10-year journey that began with Batman year one, that mm. Batman was 23 in that story. He's 33 now. Where would he be? And the logical thing was, well, if, if he's looking at the last 10 years, his life would seem like a failure because instead of Gotham City being uh, a, a a paradise, uh, it's even more of a hellscape than it ever was before. And now he's got a decision to make. Is he going to continue? Or is he gonna is he gonna say forget it you know it's hopeless this is an impossible task that I've taken on and he goes through the various different cycles of uh, of mourning and m o u r n and um uh, and depression in the course of this no man's land story that I think we all would until he finally comes to the conclusion that you know what. Um, going back to my roots and saying that uh, I'm going to be a loner and I'm going to have to do this all myself. That taking on family was my biggest mistake and it made me soft and it led to my uh, my uh, my war, my battle on crime being unsuccessful. That actually is the wrong conclusion to make and that I need to double down on family. That family is actually what makes me stronger and it is the source of my. Uh, superpowers. He doesn't have superpowers, but you know what I mean? His exceptional abilities. And by doing that, he's able to win the day. Uh, and in fact, um, I, I have a, an original comic book uh, graphic novel called Michael Midas Champion that I uh, hope to get republished. It was sort of published uh, a number of years ago. And uh, because of the vicissitudes of the industry and Ah, uh, mergers that happened—it never ended up getting finished. It's a great story, but it's about a superhero who needs to learn to value family as the source of his superpowers, and and ultimately, that's where what this all comes down to—that uh, uh, that when you start having universes that are expanding outward as universes will, it becomes unwieldy. It becomes more than any one person can possibly manage. And I think when they started the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they they managed to keep really good control over it. They had a nice spine. They had a nice through line. They had a nice outline. They were able to adapt and react and respond and expand within the confines of that outline, but they stuck to it. Then afterwards, it's okay. We've hit our end. We've hit our, our, our uh, Batman night's end, as it were. Now what do we do? do we stay the course or do we continue expanding outward? And they chose to continue expanding outward, which is a very, very tough thing to do. And Whereas on Batman, we said, we're going to stick to our through line and we're going to continue on one logical course rather than branching out in a billion different ways. And even though we created a Catwoman series and Robin series and uh, whatever else, the other series, they were still on the spine of the story.
1: The The sum of all of this... Is to refute uh, what Bob Iger said recently, which is uh, that there's superhero fatigue. There is
2: so far from superhero fatigue. You and I are in agreement on that. There, there's it's, no superhero fatigue. What it is is none whatsoever. Superheroes, it's, I'm basing this on something Archie Goodwin said, uh, the wonderful Archie Goodwin, uh, editor uh, and a group editor, writer. Uh, he's the guy who actually taught me how to do ballooning. Uh, in the, the the placement of lettering, the the preliminary placement of lettering. That's stage awesome.
1: I could do a whole podcast on that. That's
2: awesome. Uh, whatever, uh, that's a story I'll, I'll have to tell you some other time. But I can conjure up the moment like it were yesterday. Anyway, uh, Archie was a force of nature and a brilliant guy and uh, a real philosopher of comics. Uh, he and Denny were both yin and yang to each other. They were both yins, but they were also yin and yang. And it was an interesting dynamic between the two of them. Worked so well, and yet they were such different people. And then Mike Carlin is at the top of the pyramid as the uh, as the editor-in-chief or group editor at large or whatever his title was back then. And, uh, and here, the three of them actually... Um, were turned into a supervillain trio in Batman Adventures. So if you want to go back to Batman Adventures, you can find, I forget what they were called, like the masterminds or something. And uh, literally caricatures of the three of them as supervillains, our bosses at the time. Who else could do that? (laughs) But (laughs) but anyway, my point is, he used to say that the comic book industry is like a sine curve. It goes up, it goes down. And it'll forever go up and go down, but it's never going to end. It's going to continue to evolve. And I think what Archie would have predicted is that is what we're seeing right now, which is superheroes are now a bona fide category in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. And In this category, within this category, you can have all of the various different genres. And we've seen that in the Marvel Universe. You can have comedies, you can have rom coms, you can have uh, action adventure, you can have horror, you can have drama, you can have a, a, a Western, you can have everything. So naturally, when you have matured as a category like this, you're going to have some good stuff and you're going to have some stuff that doesn't succeed as well. So we don't have fatigue. What we have is fatigue with material that just isn't well baked. So when something comes out that's great, it's going to succeed. And we've seen that Spider-Verse 2 has Uh, gone like gangbusters because it's a great film. It's spectacular. It's spectacular yep. Spider-Man, but it's also haha, it's also spectacular superhero category material. Yep.
1: Do me a favor. Come back. We'll talk more about all the stuff that you're working on now, the the Haggadah, the, the, the everything that you're doing uh, that I loved. Um, but again, tell people how they can find you online and just come
2: back. Just do more of this. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm happy. Seth, talking to you is like talking into a mirror where two pieces in the same pod. Yeah. And believe me, you're much more fun than talking into a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how can people find me? People, because you ask who's the fairest of them all, and then I'll say, well, not you, but <laughs> Mirror Master. That's who the fairest of them all is. I'm I'm a huge Flash fan, huge Flash fan, and Uh-oh. I thought the series was terrific. Okay, we can't go into that. Uh, you can find me at. Jewish Cartoon. Everything I do is Jewish Cartoon. So JewishCartoon.com for the various different kinds of programming that I do around the country and indeed around the world. On Instagram, Jewish Cartoon. At TikTok, on TikTok, Jewish Cartoon. The the uh, The best platform for presenting the kind of material that I do, but everything does get placed on there if you're a Facebooker. And occasionally I tweet but mostly that's just stuff that I'm interested in. So if you want to see a fun article about this or that, I'll, I'll give links in Twitter. And of course, I have to remember, Seth, to provide you with the link to the recording of my oh. own for of comics.
1: Gorf, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you over these last couple of weeks. Uh, thanks for doing this. This is just literally episode one. I mean, this is this is it. Uh, you will come back. Uh, we could do a whole episode on No Man. We really, we barely scratched the surface on that. And then I'd love to get your take on all the different properties that are out there, the TV shows, because you have an opinion on all of them. And there's so much more that we can do here on the Hall of Justice. Thanks so much and continued success.
2: Thank you to you too, Seth. More soon.
1: The great Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Thanks so much for the support. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with an all new episode as we are each and every week. Please support the podcast by giving me a five-star review. That's our Apple Markets podcasts, and we want this podcast to grow and grow and grow and grow. Our thanks to Gorf. We will definitely have him back soon. See you next week.